Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the first things I noticed when I first discovered behavioral science was that when I gave talks about marketing and advertising, I got invited to marketing and advertising conferences. When I started talking about behavioral economics, I got invited to 10 Downing Street. I'm Julia Stainforth and I'm Maddie Croucher and we're the hosts of this podcast and editors of the Obehave blog. So as many of you might know we hold a behavioral science festival called Nudgedock every year at the beginning of June down by the coast in Folkestone and Nudgedock brings together a really varied mix of people all with a really keen interest in behavioral science. We welcome everyone from practitioners and academics to students and members of the general public as well and the day consists of thought-leading talks, cutting-edge behavioral research nudging in the real world, and the latest and greatest behavioural science case studies from all around the world. Last year was all about the evolution of behavioural science, and we have some exclusive, never-before-shared interviews from our 2016 Nudge Talk speakers. Today we'll be sharing an interview with Dr. Isabel Benke, an evolutionary biologist and primatologist who studied the social behaviour of bonobos at the University of Oxford, speaking with Tara Austin, Creative Planning Director here at Ogilvy Change, and Paul Eden, Qualitative Insight Director at Ogilvy & Mather. They talked about the biology of fun and its role in facilitating collective creativity. But before we jump into the world of bonobos, we wanted to share with you a little bit about this year's Nudgedog Festival. So this year, we have one of our most diverse lineups ever, from Mike Viking, CEO of the Happiness Research Institute of Copenhagen and best-selling author of The Little Book of Huga, to the controversial campaign director of Vote Leave, Dominic Cummings. On top of that, we'll also have fascinating talks from the Met Police problem solver, Steve Colgan, and the sportsman of the behavioral science world, Ed Smith, and we'll be discovering what we can learn from the design of aircraft cockpits from Dr. Blay Whitney. But now back to Bonobos. We hope you enjoy this entertaining interview between Tara, Paul, and Dr. Banke. Uh, we are here with Dr. Isabel Benke, evolutionary um, biologist and fellow primate. Um, Dr. Isabel, would you mind, first of all, just giving us the elevator pitch on your presentation that we've just received? Thank you. It's really lovely. A pleasure to be here. Um, I came here to talk about the biology of fun and why the biology of fun is a very serious technology. It's a social technology that basically we have been using as a species and as a lineage mammals for at least 300 million years. And it has powerful forces. So the biology of fun is the motivator for exploration, for creativity, and for bonding. Do you think play is um, underrated? Do you want to bring emphasis to play? Is that your motivation? So my motivation at large is to examine the processes that result in collective creativity. Um, play is, in a way, the product of the greatest R&D in the history of the universe, I of evolution, right? So it's a, it's not play as such, but it's really what underlines collective creativity, and as such, you derive certain big picture lessons. For instance, that cost is part and parcel of it, and waste is part and parcel of it, and breaking and testing boundaries is part and parcel of it. In modern life, how, 
What would you say are the top reasons why, as human beings, we don't play enough? Time and energy budget, but more specifically, time budget. I to be time stressed. The first thing that makes animals stop playing is be under either resource stress or psychological stress. And of course, today we are not under so much resource stress because we're much wealthier than before. But psychological stress is a huge issue, so that that will kill play very quickly. Are there any good conditions? How can we create play? What would what would you suggest we do in our day to day lives to inject more play? Alcohol. <laughs> so, I mean, it kind of flippantly, but actually, um, I'm partly kidding. It's actually, actually, humans have been drinking alcohol for probably fifteen thousand years or more. And the point, of course, is not alcohol. It's basically what conditions allow for disinhibitions to emerge. And the niche of the night, so when mm -hmm. humans started using fire, what happens is not only you gain more time, but you gain a niche in which there is permission to do stuff. There is permission to tell stories and to engage in the world of the imagination, the world of the what if, the world of the nonsensical, the world of humor and poetry and music and dancing. So so these worlds that we create in imagination are effectively very powerful social hacks because we are literally changing reality. So we were talking about, you know, don't bother with changing objective reality. It's expensive and it's boring. Mm. Um, what this niche that human evolution exploited is basically doing that, is changing reality in a much cheaper way than actually rebuilding the entire building, you know, for kind of Google uh, rules of creativity. So that's why I call it a social technology, because it literally is a technology if you think of it in that way. Our founding father, David Ogilvy, used to say that he would write better copy after a glass of whiskey. So um, perhaps that's bearing out your theory about alcohol already. Um, but in, in a sort of office construct, um, in our own agency, uh, you know, we are in a creative industry. Are there any smaller tricks um, that perhaps sadly don't involve alcohol? Yes, sorry, I, I, was, I, was, I was teasing you. But um, actually, you did make a point earlier that no. got good conversations, the conversations that last are the ones that contain laughter. Exactly, so. because the, the, the point is actually really not about alcohol, but what alcohol as a technology does. Mm. Alcohol does the same that laughter and that the same that playful mood. Basically, you want to create emotion that is heightened, but that is positive. And it's fun. It's not pleasant, mm. right? You need that strong activation. So what will create that? First, you need a basic level of trust. So, so that's important. And then also to make things, so one thing is trust. That is the, is, is a condition, but it's sufficient, but it, you know, it's a condition, but it's not necessary. I mean, it's necessary, but not sufficient. Um, but you need unpredictability. So a little bit of danger. It's important. So surprise. You know, think of a joke. Think of any game. What makes the, the game fun? It's not knowing the punchline. So unpredictability, weirdly, in play is fun. So introducing elements of surprise, and then, of course, however that translates in your environment, it depends. But that's important. These are good, good uh, tips here. They are. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that today you, you come to talk to a community of people involved in a specific business, marketing. I don't know if you've met many 
creatures like that before. I met Rory Sutherland. Uh, yeah. This sounds good like example, a great... <laughs> good example of the species. Yes. I wonder if you think as an outsider that evolution for us, evolution theory, is um, a useful way of making sense of marketing. I, I think so, absolutely. Uh, that's why I was paraphrasing Theodore Dobzhansky and saying that nothing in marketing makes sense except in the light of evolution. Because, of course, what is marketing? Marketing is driven by human behavior, and human behavior has been shaped by evolution. So I really think that both marketing can learn a lot from evolutionary biology, because the whole of evolutionary biology is engaged in the greatest experiment of marketing ever known. But also, I think that as scientists, we can literally both learn and contribute. So I think cross-pollinization between the fields could lead to wonderful things. Very highly potential. Yeah. You make the interesting point, too, that uh, watching behavior is more revealing than listening to what people have to say. I mean, See what they do, know what they say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, we have this problem in social sciences um, with questionnaires. And questionnaires are often answered aspirationally. Are you a generous person? Of course I'm mm. a generous person. Um, and so on. Uh, do you put away your savings? Will you want to? Yes, and so on. But, but to look at real behavior is different. And, and you get insights on contextual, uh, on contextual influences, which is really the key. And in your career, you've spent a lot of time studying the behavior of bonobo monkeys. Could you expand on why they are so interesting, perhaps, in, in that light? Uh, well, because they're bonobo apes. Apes. Bonobo <laughs> apes. I stand corrected, sorry. And uh, uh, so what's the difference between a monkey and an ape? Well, I would love I you to you. tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so if you draw me, draw me a, a monkey, how would you draw a monkey? With big, long arms and a wide face and a, maybe a curly tail. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and if you draw an ape? No long tail. No long tail, there you go. So monkeys are smaller, have tails, mm. but brain size to body ratio is smaller. So they're smaller brains and they have sm smaller prefrontal cortex in relation to brain size as well. Mm -hmm. um, so apes, we apes are larger, uh, not just body, but brain and prefrontal cortex. So that means that we have the capacity for you know, greater imagination and creative play if you want, but also we have a, a great executive powers. And, and that's very important in the interplay between creativity and efficiency, because of course you need be, you need that behavioral flexibility to be able to flip between between states, which is really key. Mm -hmm. um, uh, bonobo monkeys are quite well. Apes. <laughs> oh my God! So <laughs> we get again. we get wow. very worked up. No, bonobos, 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 bonobos are you know internationally renowned, I suppose as. Um, having promiscuous sexual relationships, um, how is that related? Is it related to how they play? Sure. So, so two things there. The first one is that bonobos use sex in a kind of similar way that we use language. I, it's multi, multifunctional, right? And it can be expressed in many different ways. But above all, it's a, a social conflict reductor. So in times of stress, it's, it is not the kind of long, protracted, sensual uh, behavior that we can see. Mm -hmm. I was going to say often see, but that we can see in humans. Um, rather, it's very fast, very promiscuous, and it really seems to lower stress. So that is important for play because play requires an environment in which to act. 
And so if you think about what I'm saying, it's important because it links, it has a direct relationship between social tolerance and creativity, right? You cannot have high creativity emerging from a network if you don't have a base level of tolerance. Why? Because in order to connect to ideas, I, I first and foremost need to be able to you know, relate and you know brainstorm and play with you. I, I, because it involves risk taking, I will not be, I will not dare to do that. So that means that Bonobo, the effect of female uh, diets and female relationships in Bonobos means that there is a base level of tolerance that is set in Bonobo environments. And when you have that, other things can happen. So it's not necessarily that the same individuals who are having sex are all the same individuals that are playing. No, but you have a kind of an extended network kind of effect, if you see what I mean, right? You have an environment, and on top of that, that allows for play, that allows for risk-taking. And then the second point is that actually, although we think of them, and of course they are world famous for, you know, the sexy ape, make mm. love, not war ape, you know, the bohemian ape, and the hippie ape, and the South Bank, etc., etc. Uh, I looked at, I compared sex and play in the world, and they play more often than they have sex. They also have more partners in play than more partners in sex. That means that if you look at the network of play versus the network of sex, the network of play is denser than the network mm -hmm. of sex. In other words, you could say, well, it's, it's the playful ape as much or even actually quite literally more so than the sexy ape. Um, so it's, yeah. But play. it's definitely an ape. And that yes, is something yes. we have learned today. And so are Playful we. and or sexy, yes. both an ape. I think as a parting shot, I think the one impression, that, the strongest impression I was left with from your talk was the criticality of creative play in successful communication, but also the point that Rory made at the end about building trust. Yes. Because there isn't an immediate payback yes. for that luxury. Is no, because you're signaling at, at many levels. So here we go back to kind of the, the budget, the great budget uh, that nature has. First of all, you're signaling, I have energy, I have excess energy, I have excess time, I have prowess, because a lot of play involves prowess, whether it's physical prowess, mental prowess, you know, doing like funny word play. But also, I can, and I can trust you. So we are signaling, it's like a vast signaling of I can, and, and I don't need anything back from you now. And, and that's very important, and I think that has very important applications for companies and for organizations. I don't need anything back from you now, that's a very interesting way of putting it. It's like a kind of largesse. Yes. In my gift. Yes. Yeah. Can I make one observation then? Is that a good argument for playing hard to get? Hmm. As a, as a female, you know, there's a sort of argument about whether women should or shouldn't bother playing mm. hard to get mm. um, in this liberated, equal mm. age. Mm. But is what you're saying actually that it's a sort of, there's a signaling around, I don't need you, um, and that, that it can be a positive? Hmm, I think dating advice is very dangerous. <laughs> so from an evolutionary biologist. And, and suddenly, I'm not a risk taker. <laughs> um, I, I think playing hard to get has many sides to it. Um, one of which is literally just weeding out, weeding, well, weeding out in general, because for reproductive reasons, it makes sense for females mm. to be choosier. 
A second reason might have to do with weeding out, and this is a suggestion of Geoffrey Miller, uh, behaviors that are consistent with psychopathy. Because, for example, imagine I am late or I didn't return your call, but say like I, still let's get together, and and you cannot deal with that very short term. I'm like uh, maybe not so good. I I want to see how well you're adjusting. Uh, uh, lack of empathy yeah. it's a test so I, I'm not saying it's conscious and I'm not saying it should be done either uh, so <laughs> this is I'm just thinking about again it's not dating advice I never work for me anyway I don't have a prefrontal <laughs> cortex to do it <laughs> well, well I've seen it done <laughs> on, on that on that note thank you very much for your time thank very you grateful lovely If you want to hear more from Dr. Isabel Benke, you can watch her full Nudge Stock Talk on the Ogilvy Change YouTube channel. We'll share the links in the description. And if you're interested in attending Nudge Stock this year, you can visit nudgestockfestival.com. Meanwhile, you can get your behavioral science fix on the OBehave blog, o-behave.tumblr.com, and keep up to date with the latest from Ogilvy Change by following us on Twitter, at Ogilvy Change, and liking us on Facebook. And finally, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways. Special thanks to Ruth Simmons for introducing us to the world of sound branding, and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening.